0: Of man. Yeah, People like to feel control over our own lives, but I wonder, might populism, the demand for power to the people, somewhat ironically be the enemy of democracy? With nationalism and racism seemingly on the rise uh, throughout Western Europe and America, the word populist is often used to describe these often violent movements which threaten Republican governments and democracy itself. But is this really populism? It's certainly not the traditional American populism, which has been left-leaning since the 19th century, when the populist party sought an alliance of farmers of the West and South with industrial workers of the East, taking on the powerful of Wall Street. The demographic groups today have changed, but at its core, populists have aimed at taking power from the ruling elites and restoring power to its legitimate source, the average people. What happens when anti-intellectualism is mixed in, when well-educated people are seen as elites? In election after election in the 21st century, the rise of populism has resulted in the ascendance of anti-intellectual bully boys. Are there positive aspects of populism? What is the root of the anger which is so evident? And as the 2020 presidential campaign gets into gear, can Democrats authentically tap into American populism? And how much lasting damage has right-wing, anti-intellectual populism already done? Where does the phenomena of Donald Trump fit into all this? Populists destroyed democracy in Germany in the 20th century and... Populist anger in Brazil has put in place a fascist dictator. And given what has resulted from populist anger thus far, Brexit in England, the Yellow Vests in France, many Americans are wondering, will the republic survive? A lot to talk about with our return guest, Kevin Matson, who teaches American history at Ohio University. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thanks for having me on again.
0: Well, Kevin Matson is the author most recently of Just Plain Dick, Richard Nixon's Checkers speech, and the rocking, socking election of 1952. We spoke about populism back in 2010, when it took the form of the Tea Party and was personified in Sarah Palin. Now we have Trump actually in the White House. So let's start with defining terms. How is populism defined? Can there be both left and right populism?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I, you know, I speak as a historian because that's what I've been trained to, to do. And I think you, in your introduction, you rightfully point to the roots of populism as being a, a late 19th century phenomenon in, in America. And what, it, what it was originally was a view on the part of, you know, everyday farmers, mostly from the South, somewhat from the Western portions of, the, of the country, um, kind of banding together because they felt that they were suffering economically Due to uh, railroad uh, charges on on their goods, um, due to bankers and and corrupt practices. So very clearly, the late nineteenth century variant of populism had a kind of left leaning uh, direction to it. There's no doubt about that. I think over the course of the twentieth century, what what the right has done so successfully, if you keep in mind that what the nineteenth century populists wanted to do was to actually uh, have more planning in in the uh, nationwide economy, um, and what that meant was that you were going to have governmental role in terms of regulating uh, economic production. And what you gradually see across the course of the 20th century is that the right picks up on the kind of cultural variant of populism, injects it with this sort of anti-intellectualism, but most importantly says that and this is clear in Reagan's inaugural address in in 1981, that the problem now is government. The enemy now is government. And it becomes an attack on government rather than, say, large banks, rather than on privately held railroads as it would for the original populace. So I think that, yes, there is a left populism um, and a right-leaning populism. But my general argument to now is that the right has basically championed populism so successfully that I don't see how you're going to steer it to the left.
0: Whoa. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And I've, I have found it fascinating that the populists of today don't target, you know, the Wall Street, the powerful corporate rulers, basically, but target government instead, which uh, you're right. I mean, The government used to be seen as somebody who would be on the side of the average person. But nowadays, it seems like they don't even, there's no concern about the corporate power over our government.
1: No, no. I mean, and look at who's president, right? Yeah, and, and exactly. And uh, on a kind of quasi-populist message, of course, it's never really quite clear what Donald Trump believes, yeah. you know, what his message really actually is. But I mean, you know, he certainly, um, you know, kind of got the masses stirred up um, as he yeah. continues to do whenever he goes out campaigning. Um, and yet, you know, this guy is the, is a perfect exemplar of the global elite, a real estate developer um, who has no, you know, I don't think even any loyalty to the, the nation that he supposedly served. So I think, you know, if if that's a populist, um, or at least, you know, someone who ran on a populist campaign, we're, personally, I think we're at the end game at this point in time, thinking that populism can be, you know, steered back to the left. But yeah, that was, I mean, originally, I think everybody, I think most historians, most political scientists would agree that conservatives do better when there is distrust in government. Um, and, and, you know, the distrust in government, I think, now has taken on a, a wild turn. I mean, you no. know, the QAnon and all that sort of stuff that's out there, these conspiracy theories oh, um, yeah. about, you know, secret deep state sort of deep thing. State, um, that just goes to show you, I think, how it's, it's going to be really difficult to, to kind of, you know, reinvent the language of a left, left-leaning populism that sees the good that government can do.
0: And I do hope to have uh, former presidential candidate Fred Harris from 1976 on this show, who was a left-leaning populist, a U.S. senator from Oklahoma. Now, in American history, back in the uh, 18th century, there were the Shays and Whiskey Rebellions, both of which I think were about the rage of farmers being burdened with paying back the costs of the War of Independence, money which had been lent by wealthy creditors. Am I correct that that was a form of populism, and that our founders were very worried about mobs like that?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's the, you know the origins of the of the anti banking tradition um, that runs throughout American history, even even you know before, as you're pointing out, before the 19th century. Um, and I think that you know the 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 sort of uh, dislike of someone like an Alexander Hamilton. And his vision for a national bank, which was seen back in the good old days, if you want to use that term, back then seen as kind of, you know, the government colluding with banks, helping wealthy elites. Um, further their own interests. I think that's the core of a lot of 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 what we would call you know a kind of populist um, sentiment, a uh, distrust in 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 especially private interest um, and who who are benefiting from collusion oops there's a term the collusion with the government. Um, I think you're right that's that's where you can see kind of the heart of, of populism and then it you know it it really erupts again in the late nineteenth century
0: now when when I get confused about, and history is always fun because it's never easy, Uh, that that in a republic, citizens in general want to feel like we have power over our own lives. And historically, when when we have felt like powerful elites own our government, that that has led to a rise in populism. But what seems different now is that, I don't know, it seems like these so-called populists aren't bothered by... Powerful elites owning our government by these you know big, powerful lobbyists having so much control, much more control than the average person. I, I, it's odd to me, as you were saying though, you know Reagan made government uh, the, the, the target of populism. How did I wonder about this shift? It's very odd.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, I think, first off what you're pointing out is that, you know, America's self-conception is itself as a republic, a small-r republic. Yes. Um, and republicanism, the faith that, you know, citizens have uh, an obligation to defend the republic against, you know, foreign attacks, um, but also where there's right. a kind of independence on the part of each citizen, um, even though they should also pay attention to a kind of shared common good. Um, I think that, you know, basically uh what happened i mean you know it's hard to identify exactly when you start seeing a kind of right-wing populism my own argument would be that you can start to see it in um the rise of mccarthyism uh during the 1950s oh. Um, where, you know, Joseph McCarthy always played up his kind of Midwestern farm boy persona um, and, and and basically said, you know, the, the problems today are that there are these elites that are hiding communists within the State Department. Mm-hmm. And um, even though, you know, Harry S. Truman had already done an awful lot to combat any infiltration of the sure. State Department by communists. Um, that's where I think you start to see it because, and that, because that kind of heats up the animus towards government and distrust in government. Um, and it also plays to that sort of, you know, Fiery, radical, conspiratorial um, thinking, which I think is now so much a part of, of right-leaning populism. I, 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 you know, people are going to have different origin points for this sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Um, I
1: think it becomes even more explicit under you know Richard Nixon and his rhetoric, the rhetoric of the silent majority. Who's opposed to all the rioters and protesters against the Vietnam War? You can see it, I think, erupt there, um, and then I think Ronald Reagan really honed it um, perfectly um, uh, to, and and won spectacularly, you know, in, in, in his in his seeking after the presidency. So, I mean, I think there's these moments where you can kind of see this sort of distilled version of of right wing, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, anti statism, um, and I think again, I would say that you see it most. Uh, evocatively um in, in the career of someone like a Joseph McCarthy.
0: Boy, I had never put that together, but as you explain it, it makes sense. I do love learning history and I hope listeners do as well, because you know, then we can know what the heck is going on now. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, we are doing our best to keep democracy alive. That's the name of the show, keeping democracy alive. And our guest today, Kevin Matson, who teaches American history at Ohio University. And we may see uh, one of your senators uh, here in New Hampshire, I suppose, uh, sometimes. Uh, Sherrod Brown is one of the names uh, who's uh, talked about for being uh, a presidential candidate. He sort of strikes me as kind of populist as well. But we'll, we'll get back to that. I, I was curious about when the federal government bailed out the big banks in 2009, people who lost their homes due to the remarkably imprudent lending practices got nothing. Where was the populist anger then? i mean, how did the there's just like no anger at the big banks and the fact that it was our money that bailed out these guys who screwed up so badly on, you know at their own direction
1: yeah, you know i mean it's it's a it's a good question. I mean, I think that in some ways what what we're witness to uh in in that in that event was um the fact that there is there's a profound distrust in um, in the government uh, uh, that runs throughout America's history, and I think it kind of came out in that form as being, you know, the the tirade went against the government, right? I mean, that after all is sort of like what people see as as, as swirling around the formation of the Tea Party, not the big banks, not the not the large corporations that are that are benefiting. Um, I think you know, I, I think w- what uh, what people who are hopeful on the progressive left have yet to really deal with is the fact that, you know, people don't necessarily only identify with their own self interest. That you can you know, you, you there is this sort of belief in, in the, the American dream that still courses throughout there throughout our throughout our history and, and I think it's still there today, which has a profound distrust in both government and any sort of attempt to really actually reform the system as it presently exists. I, I, I can't say that I can fully identify where where you can see that explicitly, but I think you're absolutely right. It was in it was in the bailout that 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 many people were taken aback by the fact that there should have been much more anger directed at the banks, um, and instead it seemed to get channeled into this sort of Tea Party um, anger at, you know, government.
0: Wow. Interesting uh, twist of logic, but that's that's how it works. In 2016, many people saw Hillary Clinton as elitist and and didn't like that. I wonder how her infamous phrase, basket of deplorables, comment played in this context that you're talking about.
1: Yeah, I mean... Hillary Clinton, I, I think we, we, we often forget that, you know, what she did when she ran for her first attempt um, at the presidency in 2008, she was, she was quite nasty to um, um, Barack Obama, who obviously w- went on to win. Um, I, think that there's a, a, I think that there's just this profound distrust in the, in the Clintons. I think some of that has to do with maybe a little bit of lingering memory about, you know, the failure of, of Bill Clinton's second term and some of kind of Hillary Clinton's own feeling that he, she was something of an enabler to his kind of questionable behavior. Um, I, and, and, and yet I also, I just never felt in, in, in her run for office in 2016 that she was ever really clear about what it was that she was for. Um, she really didn't articulate, I think, a clear vision that people could really get behind and understand. Um, and I think that made Trump so much easier yeah. um, because he was so easy to understand, right? And 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 so incredibly flawed um, that I, you know, somehow or other, right there. I, and then then the comment on deplorables. I mean, it's it's kind of shocking to think about how you know someone can um, have such a tin ear. Uh, towards, towards you know, uh, uh, your approach towards American politics. I don't. I, I'm not really sure. I think that that was a, a real missed opportunity um, in 2016, and I think that you know Democrats are kind of paying the price for it.
0: No. <laughs> Yeah, all of America, I think, is paying a price.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would agree.
0: And, you know, to me, just calling millions of Americans a basket of deplorables, not a good strategy. It's just, you know, not a good
1: no, thing. It's not. And it goes to show how much now populism is really cultural. Right, Uh not it's not political. I mean, you know, if you lined up Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and you said who who approximates a kind of populist policy um, uh, in 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 terms of what they're arguing for, I think most people would say definitely Hillary Clinton. But I mean, it's it's more now it's like terminology, it's values, it's it's you know the the things of culture that predominate rather than you know either people voting out of their own self interest um, or you know people uh, being able to articulate. uh, 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 you know, b- public policy that, that would benefit the, the common good rather than just, you know, um, wealthy Americans.
0: Well, I, it, it does seem, I mean, I, I think you really hit on a big point here that the cultural aspect of it has really uh, taken over and is really uh, front and center. And to, to say, you know, the, the, the common good, there's a lot of people who I think would, could be seen as populists who think the common good is like saying communism. You know, they don't, they, they don't think, as you talked about, you know, the old myth of uh, America, you know, everybody you know, on his or her own, you know, picking their, themselves up by their bootstraps, that the common good is, uh, you would think that would be a basic part of any kind of populism, real populism, you know, it's about the people. But the common good is just, uh, it's looked down on nowadays. What, what, are you, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, you're right, I think it's, you know, cultural.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of people are taking a, a great deal of hope about what seems to be the, the political views of, of today's millennials. Um, and, you know, this is a generation that, you know, has grown up without there being something like what we would, what we would call in the day really existing socialism, which meant essentially the Soviet Union um, and, and, and swaths of, of Eastern Europe. Um, and, and it was, I mean, when, when that was a reality... Um, it became really easy to smear anybody on the left with the, you know, you're a communist, you're, a, you're cloaking your communism or what have you. And that, that really worked, I think, very, very well. Yeah. This is a generation, you know, supposedly that's growing up without any, you know, knowledge or not knowledge or memory um, of, of an existing, you know, quote-unquote evil empire that, that America is in battle with. Um, and that's made this whole contemporary... Issues about Russia and all that sort of stuff. I think even more weird um, to a certain extent. But for the millennials, seemingly, um, you know, there there seems to be more openness at least on the part of some. Polling, it seems to show, in, in something like socialism, I mean, that that term is no longer as much of a scare tactic right. as I think it was for, for my oh, generation, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, growing up. I think now there's maybe some possibilities that there's kind of an openness towards, towards you know, using government to, to, to solve some of the economic problems that the country faces. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the, I, the millennials aren't the majority. So um, at this point in time, you know, it seems to be that there is a kind of opening and a a revisiting of of socialist ideas. Um, But I'm not yet quite convinced that that's enough to push us over the edge and to, to, you know, inaugurate some sort of new new political force out there in Hmm. in American politics.
0: Well, there's always the whole celebrity factor, which seems... Outrageously important. Unfortunately, you know what they stand for, what the policy is. Ah, it doesn't matter as much. Are they a star, a big star? But I do think talking about uh, the millennials, the word capitalism seems to, uh, as I understand polling, uh, uh, in you know, draw more negative reaction than the word socialism. So perhaps, I mean, there's as as you say, there's economic populism and cultural populism. So maybe perhaps some of the uh, millennials which i guess are the biggest generation since my generation uh may be more uh attuned to economic populism than this uh right-wing cultural populism i have no idea time will tell
1: that's yeah i i you know I'm a historian i, I write about things that happened in the past I don't make any predictions about the future oh, um it, <laughs> but it does seem like there is we we're in a uh, an exceptionally different period of time um, than we were at the height of the Cold War. I guess is, is maybe the easiest way to is
0: the yeah. easiest way to put it. Well, we will see. And a lot of these people, you know, these young people, pff, surprisingly, went for uh, Bernie Sanders in in yeah. twenty sixteen, which certainly was a economic populism. I think. And and speaking of history, as you may be able to tell, I kind of like history myself. I think it's great fun. In nineteen thirty six. President Franklin Roosevelt campaigned against the, what he called the economic royalists. And, you know, royalists uh, has always sort of been a, a, you know, a a word you don't want to be associated with in America since the, you know, the uh, War of Independence. Franklin Roosevelt talked about the economic royalists, no doubt thinking that that would uh, strike a chord with Americans who don't like the concept of economic royalists, but the economic royalists are absolutely in charge today. How can you explain this? Can you? Well, I mean, you know, the,
1: the point's a great one. I mean, FDR is, you know, a fascinating political character. Um, it's also, you know, it happens to be that when you mentioned Bernie Sanders in the past, I mean, Bernie Sanders, when he says what he really wants to get back to, uh, he 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 says, well, it's socialism, but it's actually probably like FDR's New Deal, yes, which I think is an absolutely. important reminder about the, the lingering legacy of of the New Deal and, and Roosevelt's presidency. One of the things that Roosevelt was so good at was, you know, he came from a background yes. of privilege. I oh, mean, yeah. he he was um, really probably the closest thing you could get to uh, an American aristocrat. Um, and yet, I think there was something about FDR that that really tied into his own experience with polio um, and with suffering. Um, physical pain um, is that it gave him a great sense of empathy, and I think he really felt for a wider swath of the American people than um, you know it seems to be today. Uh, I think he's like you know he's almost like he's almost like the direct opposite of Donald Trump, um, except the fact that they both came from backgrounds where they they had wealth um, and and yet went in two totally different directions. I'm not sure how you go back to that. I mean, it may be that there's going to be someone who's you know a wealthy person out there who will actually decide that, you know, he, he or she wants to run on, on, on a, a ticket that basically, you know, talks about democracy, equality, and, and
0: those sorts of things?
1: I'm not sure, but I think that's what FDR actually, you know, offered uh, to people in 1936.
0: Well, as they said, he was a traitor to his class, and I suppose... A traitor to his class. Ted Kennedy may have been as well, and I think people saw him as a champion of the little guy. And and it seemed to work. People loved him, at least in uh, in Massachusetts, they did. Now, e- yeah,
1: that's certainly true. Although he was one of the first to put through a pretty significant corporate tax cut, um, oh. which some say you know <laughs> made the economy bounce. But you know, I don't think it would be easily identifiable as say a left wing populism uh-huh. um, necessarily. But um, yeah, but but yeah, point 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 well taken.
0: Well, and and. You talk, I mean, the, the, the change, you know, from economic populism to cultural populism, clearly the target of, of right wing populists today is a pervasive hatred of the educated among us. How has populism yeah. transformed into this pervasive anti intellectualism that just baffles me?
1: Well, you know, go back to the original populace and 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 we have to, you know, I mean it was a it was a um uh, it was a Group of people who had different views, even though they shared some things in common. Um, there was, though, back in in, in the late nineteenth century, with the attack on the banks, there was a kind of um, th- there could creep into some variants of populism a kind of anti semitism, a kind of conspiracy theory about how the banks are actually trying to you know destroy um, uh, the small producer and things like that. Of which there was there was certainly some truth and validity to it, but it kind of could lead to a sort of conspiratorial view of the world. And I think what's happened is that, you know, that kind of conspiratorial view, especially as, as it gets wrapped up in anti-government uh, sorts of politics, in, in the case of the right, um, today has just kind of, you know, gone to to... No end, and I think you've got a president who so clearly is saying there is no such thing as truth, there is no such thing as facts, there is no such thing as, as any of those types of things, and and that's I think profoundly dangerous. It just fuels the anti-intellectualism that I think has always been there. Um, but I think that there's always been a distrust on the part of, of you know left or right that um, calls into question the, the the idea of there being expertise. And I you know, how are we going to solve the problems that we're faced with? Push aside the socioeconomic problems. Let's talk about climate change. How are you going to solve the problem of climate change without having the aid and and, and help and assistance from people who we would have to call experts, uh, including scientists? Uh, it's just not, I don't think it's a good formula for for you know combating the problems that we're we're currently faced with.
0: Oh certainly, and yeah. and you hit on many points there. One of course is uh is anti Semitism and, and there was a republic uh back in uh, Germany after the First World War for a while. Uh but then there was the cultural populism of the uh the people out in the country, the rural people, against the sophisticated intellectual types in Berlin, and we saw what happened there. Uh very interesting and, and kinda scary. And, uh, you know, the anti-Semitism that, you know, there was that attack in in Pittsburgh uh, in, you know, the fall of 2018. Uh, It's easy to blame others, the other. And I wonder if, you know, the anti-Semitism, the, uh, I guess it's not quite blatant racism of the anti-immigrant, but it's racist. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, because these people are, are the other and I wonder about, you know, populism leading to, well, as it did in Germany, uh, very, very dangerous uh, uh, stuff that, uh, you know, simplistic messages, anti-intellectual, anti-expert, as you say. And I want to talk more about that. But I wonder about the, the danger there of focusing on the other. I mean, there was the whole stab in the back uh, nonsense back in, in, you know, at the end of World War I that people blamed the other. It's so easy to blame the other rather than the banks that actually have the power, the corporations that actually have the power. Your thoughts on all that?
1: Yeah, there's a really. I mean, it's it's unfortunate. I mean, I, I, as a historian, I always feel like I kind of um, give a sort of depressing, you know, well, se- depressing scenario uh, for your listeners. Probably, um, I think that there's a heavy strain of nativism in this country. Um, the belief that you know, you, you only those born within the United States uh, deserve the, the the responsibilities and also the benefits of citizenship. That is a very 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 strong tradition. Um, and I think that you know, I mean, if you go back to say, for instance, at the time at which the Ku Klux Klan, after you know we, we made it through uh, the Civil War, and you push up into the 1920s, there was a heavy focus on the part of the Klan to um, stop uh, focusing so much on the race question and more so tr- talk about the immigrant question, um, and and you know you really saw a kind of white supremacist uh, approach ga- getting the Klan a lot of members in the in the 1920s. I mean they were on the rise, yeah. but they were especially on the rise in in, in urban areas, um, and also very often northern urban areas, including places like Indianapolis and, and the state of Indiana. And so I think that there's always been a very very strong Capacity to to you know um, think in a sort of nativist logic. One of the important stories about you know from a historian standpoint is is if you go back to the original populist and you can hear a lot of you know you you do hear anti-Semitism in some of their discussions. But one of the key cases that people point to is that one of its chief leaders, the chief leader of the People's Party or the Populist Party, Tom Watson from Georgia, when the Populists fail as a third party, which they're almost you know, inevitably going to, when they fail, he turns extremely nativist, um, extremely anti-Semitic, and extremely racist. Um, So, you know, I think there's always that feeling that bubbling up below some sort of left-leaning populism, there might be the uglier side. And I think Donald Trump has basically played that uglier side to the hilt. Um, and uh, he, you know, I mean, his, his rhetoric about about especially people south of the border um, is, you know, both appalling, but also, I think, unfortunately, something that we as a country have, you know, done a lot to nurture.
0: Uh, yeah, it does connect. It does work. And this this whole racism thing has been there and nativism has been there for a long time. But as a friend of mine said, it's like uh, the cover has been over the sewer for a long time, but it's just blown off and it does kind exactly. of it does kind of stink. If you just tuned in Bert Cohen here, the show is keeping democracy alive and our guest today is Kevin Matson who teaches American history at Ohio University. And I got to read this book. I I will confess I haven't uh, Just Plain Dick, Richard Nixon's Checkers Speech and the Rocking Socking Election of 1952. I will read that. It sounds like a lot of fun. I was a little too young to... Well, you know, to it does
1: relate, I mean, I'm not going go to ahead. push the book, but it does relate a little bit to this question, because of populism and its veering right, because I'd say the Checkers Speech, which the book, you know, really focuses on, um, is oh, yeah. one of the first places where you can see a kind of right-leaning cultural populism that's also within the context of when Joseph McCarthy is at his height. But, you know, when Nixon says, you know, I my, my wife has a plain cloth coat, and, you know, I'm an ordinary person and all this sort of stuff. I mean, th- it, you get a real sense that that's kind of um, uh, one of those many, p- perhaps, genesis stories of, of right-wing cultural pocket.
0: And uh, Trump at least claims to have a great deal of money. I suspect he has less than he claims. But the way he relates to a lot of people, I think, in a popular sense is that, oh, he's one of us. He's one of he just speaks his mind. He's not this you know highly intellectual egghead like Adlai Stevenson was that did not serve him well in that election. Uh, but that uh, you know he just he's like just a regular Joe, one of us, and that's that's a tough thing to to deal with. And the whole thing about expertise and and not trusting expert that you know a, par, a big part of Trumpism is the belief that ignorance is just as valuable. As being well-educated, anti-elitism, and as you say, edu- attacking educated elites is red meat for the conservative politicians. that That's, uh, I can't quite figure that out. What's wrong with expertise, with knowing your stuff? People attack you if you, if you actually know your stuff and have, have read up your comments on that.
1: Yeah, it's it's a disturbing, and yet you know we keep coming back to this, right? I mean, it, it, from a historian standpoint, there are deep roots to to um, populism. There's also deep roots to nativism, and there's deep roots to anti-intellectualism. Um, there's always a profound distrust of. I think you know, I, in many ways, you know, and and Nixon used this rhetoric a lot um, in, as early as the early 1950s. There's a real hatred of the what would be termed the Eastern establishment. Right, right. Um, uh, you know that you know, when people say that, I think they. Predominantly mean Boston and New York City, Um, but I think that there's like a you know a profound feeling that 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 the elites are out of touch with ordinary citizens. That's rhetoric that you hear from many populists, and that therefore there should be a profound mistrust in elites, in people who have any claim to being highly educated and Mm -hmm. having some sort of expertise in any field. Um, uh, There's and and look, there's there's you know there there are reasons to to if 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 we're looking at this from the left. To, to remind ourselves that, you know, when Robert McNamara, I'm sure that name brings all sorts of chilling bells in, in your own mind, oh, yes. Right when Robert McNamara, who is the kind of quintessential expert, was basically saying we're doing really, really well in Vietnam and uh-huh. I can show it through body accounts and all this sort of stuff, that there was this kind of, you know, feeling like, wait, there's a problem with expertise. The way he talks, the technical language that he uses kind of divorces him from the realities of the bloodiness of the Vietnam War. And so I think that, you know there there's there, I, I, I get it from 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 a left leaning perspective as to why people could be distrustful about experts if they're covering up um, mistakes of their own making especially um, I think though that what the what you know Trump and the right have done is kind of taken that the kernel of truth to being rightfully suspicious about people who claim to have expertise um, into like you know. Into territory where it's just gotten way, way out of hand, um, and has traveled way further to the right again, and we're, to a certain extent, where I feel, again, this is why I don't think you can take right wing cultural populism and try to steer it steer it leftwards, because I think, you know, we if if we have anything to defend, and I think your show is, is the perfect exemplar of, of of a show that's trying to defend certain core democratic values, we do have to defend intellectualism. We do have to um, uh, say that, you know, uh-huh. we need experts in certain cases to solve the problems that we're faced with. And we can't, you know, we we couldn't play up a kind of, you know, left-leaning anti-intellectualism I think and get anywhere <laughs> uh, in American politics
0: today. Boy, it'd be interesting to poll test that. <laughs> <laughs> you know among the average person i don't know how it would do i would like to think that it would do well but maybe not i mean i i like you know like if i'm gonna have some surgery i'd kind of prefer to have somebody who knows what the heck he or she is doing on my body <laughs> you know but i don't know this uh uh ignorance is just as valuable it's it's pretty scary and be interesting to again poll test it now there used to be uh, go ahead you're about to say something
1: well, I mean, I think it's it's kind of what 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 I call. Um, a version of what we what I think is rightfully labeled postmodern conservatism, right which yeah. is this weird amalgamation of complete utter relativism and the belief that if you believe in something you have the right to believe in it even if it's factually incorrect um, I mean that stuff has been has, has gotten completely out of control I think you know Trump is, is basically I mean the Nixon administration and Nixon himself always talked about pointy-headed intellectuals right. and 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 hated the ma- hated the media Trump just has taken that straight and just kind of, you know, played it full tilt. And um, in the process, I think it made it more and more difficult to, to. I think you're right, to think about how, how can we recover the importance of intellectualism, of deliberation, of, you know, thoughtful analysis of the problems that we're faced with. It's, it's, it's hard to see us being able to get out of the time that we're presently inhabiting in, in terribly good shape.
0: Well, I certainly had not thought about the reality that you know, during the, the Vietnam War, the experts were, and I use that in quotes, were all saying, oh, yeah, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, we're going to win. And it was lies, absolute. And and that, uh, you know, people recognize that, you know, McNamara and others were intellectuals, you know, Harvard educated, Boston, New York, uh, East Coast elite. And that A lot of people died and lost limbs, and that was the reality. So, of course, you're going to distrust these people. That's that's an interesting uh, historical point that I hadn't figured. That's what we like to do here. Now, back a little bit in history, there used to be conservative intellectuals. One thinks of William F. Buckley. As you write, Steve Bannon has gained the weighty moniker of thought leader. Steve Bannon thought leader. This too tells us something important about the state of the conservative intellectual movement. It baffles me how he could be described as an intellectual. Then there's the character, I uh, may pronounce, mispronounce Milo Yiannopoulos. Some saw him as an intellectual leader. What does this say about the uh, the height of the intellectual bar in the twenty first century, and people may not remember. Well, notice
1: that the, yeah, I mean, notice that the term is used "thought leader," right? It is not intellectual, um, and and I think that's that's you know. Being um, in in some ways, I don't know if I want to say it's at least a little bit more honest, but it's also clearly nobody on the right wants to self-identify as an intellectual the way I think okay. William F. Buckley Jr. Um, did, did want yeah. to. I, and so, I don't I'm not elevating William F. Buckley Jr. into being a hero by any means, but I do think that he you know had a kind of intellectual demeanor um, to uh, especially some of his earlier uh, works during the 1950s. Um, I, you know, Steve Bannon as an intellectual, um, I mean, when he's basically a campaign strategist and yeah. his backgrounds in gaming and making propagandistic movies. Um, it just goes to show you how we've, you know, uh, I think uh, I think, you know, there, there's uh, buckley and and some of the people that he organized at the National Review had a vision of intellectual life that was very much warlike, and you know, having to to go against the liberal establishment. They saw them. I mean, Buckley saw himself as a re- as a rebel um because he was a self-pronounced conservative, and he was fighting the Eastern establishment and all the intellectual pointy heads um uh, from the right. And I think that, that that tendency just gets, you know, completely magnified and I would say also hardened um, by making Steve Bannon into something of a quasi-intellectual of the contemporary conservative movement or maybe we should call it, you know, contemporary Trumpism, if there's something larger than just um, the, the man Trump. Um, and I think that's the sign of, of, of kind of, of, of what you could just generally chart as intellectual descent, descending, not dissent, uh-huh. um, you know, yeah. in, in America uh, right. over the course of the last number of years.
0: Well, yeah, and and I have noticed that Republicans in power have for many decades, at least four, relentlessly, uh, intentionally cut funding for public education. Is it possible they knew what they were doing? The less able to think critically, the more people accept authoritarianism. I've just been astounded at how... They've focused so much on cutting funding for public education and and devalued public education. There are people who call it government schools. Comments on that. Have they intentionally dumbed down America?
1: I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I you know, I mean, of course, and I, I know you know this. I mean, you know, there's the danger of of, of there being a kind of left leaning conspiracy. You know, I, I don't. I'm not saying that everybody sure. on the right is, has that much intelligence and foresight to know how to do it. <laughs> but I think, look, I, it's it, it's generally a part of the pattern of you 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 drain the tub, right? I mean, it's it's a. Part, I mean, the cuts in public in public education run simultaneously to general cuts in in federal spending right so i mean it's it's i think that there's a purpose behind the cuts in 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 higher education especially that lend themselves to a sort of you know anti-intellectualism um so i i mean i i think that but but i think it's also you know hinged to the general attack on government so i mean now that we look at like for instance um the way the Trump uh, administration has dealt with something they wanted to get rid of, which was Obamacare, you know, enrollments are down. And and most people who are ever trying to figure out why the enrollments are down are saying because basically, you know, they've, they've, they've made it more and more difficult for the agency to do its work in terms of publicizing, you know, the what it what it can offer people in terms of assistance to acquire healthcare, um, and they're doing this kind of, you know, what, what the what the right is always very good at is is perhaps appointing people to agencies within the federal government who actually don't believe in what the agency right. is going to be doing, right. um, and so you know you see that obviously with with people like Pruitt, um, and it's it, it's all yes. part of the same thing. I mean, the anti-intellectualism I think is is is, is now an attack. On on funding of education, but I think it's part of that broader attack on government. And the way you get rid of government is you is you drain the top And I think that that's that's always been the way that 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 especially I would say since at least Ronald Reagan's presidency. Um, you yeah. know, you see uh, the attempt to like kind of strip government of its power um, by defunding it.
0: And yeah, the the whole uh, not valuing critical thinking like was valued so much when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s and certainly you know there's a in terms of history of populism in America there's the whole uh, Confederate branch which in the 30s had Huey Long who was very popular populist and and questionable uh, death but then there was uh, George C Wallace who was clearly a populist I don't think Huey Long was a racist, but George Wallace, at least most of his life, was a a racist. I wonder how this white supremacist idea has become so mainstream. It's just it's kind of shocking to me and its relation to any notion of populism. How did it become so mainstream?
1: Well, Well, I'm glad that you mentioned George Wallace. I mean, he's he's certainly someone who I think you can say is the is an architect. In right wing cultural populism that's fused itself to racism. Um, again, I think that, you know, I think how has it become more mainstreamed? I guess, you know, it's in, I think that back in the 70s and 80s when Republicans were trying to figure out how they were going to um, acquire more power. There was, you know, and it was already evident in in Nixon's campaigns of 68 and 72, there was this thing called the Southern Strategy, which um, the Republicans knew full well that what LBJ had done um, in in terms of passing the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act was that he handed the the Southern states over to to Republican control, right? And so I think that in some ways what you see is you see that that kind of Southern Strategy, which is a subtle attempt to, to basically voice a, 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 I think a racist um, viewpoint um, without it sounding like it's bald faced racism. Right. I think though it's also something that you can't necessarily, like you said, your your friend who talked about you know the the sewer and 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 kind of picking up the the lid on it and all of a sudden saying, oh my god, look at how much there is there. Um, I think that in some ways they they, they instigated a situation in which they 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 were playing with fire um, and they were basically uh-huh. saying to many racists who lived in the South, we're on your side. Um, but let's not be bald about it. Let's not be, you know, upfront about it. And and I think that that's not necessarily as controllable of an endeavor uh, as, as probably some of those architects back in the, in the, you know, 70s and 80s thought it might be.
0: Oh, interesting. Getting things out of control. Yikes. That has happened uh, a lot in history, unfortunately. And this whole, one of the things that you know, the the intellectual Steve Bannon uh, thought of. And, you know, it seems like his focus is on how to win. Whatever the heck it is, how to win. Never mind the ideas and things like that. It's how to win. The fear, and FDR talked about the power of fear, the fear of refugees, of the caravan of just a few thousand people, uh, played somehow into... uh, this uh, cultural populism quite a bit, and it do- I can't see it any other way than racism, because if there were, you know, people from the Scandinavian countries, people wouldn't have this, this fear. I wonder about fear and populism. It seems to mix together a fair amount.
1: It does, I mean, it, and, it, and it consistently has. Um, I think, and again, I, I guess my interpretation of it is that, you know, Donald Trump, is the sort of is doing stuff that had been done in the past. It's just a little bit more overt. It's a little bit more. I mean, to 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 be quite blunt about it, it's a little bit more stupid um, than you know. Like for instance, people who are talking about a southern strategy, right? I right, mean that right. that that's the sort of like you know that that's language that you can get you can use, um, and and yet you know what you have under Trump is just this kind of bald faced. Sort of, you know, calling immigrants bad names and saying that they're all a bunch of rapists and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, I think that again, that the fear is, I think, intertwined. I, you, you, you already, I think, hit upon this, right, when you said about the othering of in, in American political thought, right? That that there's this general fear of of an outsider who's coming in. Um, that's that's abundant. Um, I think still predominantly associated with the left, la- with the right. Um, you know i think though if you look at say labor unions when you're in the in the sixties and seventies there and up to the eighties and nineties most certainly there was a kind of anti-immigrant um... you know sentiment on the part of many labor union leaders right because there was the fear that people would come into the country willing to work for lower wages and that this would be a way to 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 oh, you know yeah. um... reduce wages um... so i mean there's there's always been that that sort of strain on the left but again Nothing in comparison to the just bald-faced fear that I think a lot of Republicans are, are, you know, cycling around with now, and especially with someone like a Donald Trump.
0: If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're uh, doing Keeping Democracy Alive, which is a heavy lift. Of course, we need your participation as well. Our guest today is Kevin Matson, who teaches American history at Ohio University. We're talking about populism, where it is right now, how powerful it is and how dangerous it, it may be. Nationalism and populism. That, you know, I, I, people maybe people don't really understand the difference between patriotism and nationalism, but is there a link? I mean, certainly there was the nationalist link in, in Germany in the 1930s and has been the case other times. I, I wonder how, if it's intentionally done uh, by people who manipulate populism and, and the uh, and wanting nationalism and and you know white racism, white supremacy as as well. What's the link between nationalism and populism?
1: Well, I mean, you know if you if you look at those original populists that we be, began our discussion or, you know around um, in the late nineteenth century, there was a lot of. Um, you know, I think what we would call kind of nationalistic rhetoric. Um, I think that there's always been on the, on the left. I mean, you, you use the term nationalism. I think, and some people would act also, you know, uh, tie that into isolationism. I think there's always been a That's kind true. of populist isolationism, um, that, uh, you know, in some, in some periods of time, if you take, for instance, the debate about should the United States enter into World War I, where the kind of, the, if you, and you study the Socialist Party, the Socialist Party in the United States basically said, no, the United States should not enter into World right. War I because it's right. not in the interest of the working class. Right. Um, and actually, that was, in some people's minds, the period of time in which um, socialism goes into decline um, and mm. then really goes into decline and then kind of comes back when you're, when you're in the 1930s with the Great Depression. But I think that there's always been a kind of nationalistic streak um, I think, in some ways, that has to do with a, another thing that we've already talked about, which is nativism. Yeah. Um, um, but I think that, uh, and 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 to you know, white nationalism, as it's now being called, um, I think that there that's that's a part of that whole long you know history um, of of sentiments that uh, you know can go in very different directions. I think you know nationalism has gone in uh, a very dangerous direction, especially, again, under Trump's leadership, right, yeah, where he's basically yeah. saying, you know, we're going we're to get out of all these global agreements because, we, you know, we need to p- protect America first and right. all that sort of stuff. And all that America first language, oh. I think that's, again, the ugly side that in some ways links up to the isolationist of, of the left in the early 20th century, but it's also taken on its own very peculiar variant at this point.
0: Then there's authoritarianism and one would think I mean you know political populism would be the antithesis of authoritarianism governed you know by the mob a lot of people well, what is the real relation of populism to authoritarianism i mean Trump is definitely authoritarian and people seem to love that
1: Yeah yeah there's a there's a uh, I wrote a recent piece for for dissent magazine in which i kind of went back and looked at a, a classic study that was done in the in the 40s and 50s, by a group of thinkers known as the Frankfurt School, and, and the book that they came uh, that they published based upon their research was called the Authoritarian Personality. And what they were worried about was having escaped from Germany um, because of you know authoritarianism um, of of its own variant. Um, you know, wanted to explore whether or not there were. Americans who held a kind of authoritarian personality and they did all this kind of you know social science sort of work to try to they came up with this thing called the F scale which was how much do, do you have faith in what we would call fascism and, and I think they were kind of appalled and, and frightened themselves about the fact that there was more authoritarianism out there in, in the United States than most people wanted to take into account and I think that really that, that is one of, of Trump's Major appeals in some—it's completely linked to the anti-intellectualism, right? Because intellectuals are associated with people who are kind of open-ended, um, you know, deliberative, um, keeping their minds open towards new ideas, whatever, whatever way they come to them. And and, and what Trump projects is this sort of, you know, the decider. The, the and I think he, in many ways this is also language that you heard George W. Right. Bush be right. using. You know, I'm the decider. Um, I'm the one who basically closes down the debate. Doesn't let the debate go on any longer, and I use my power to do that. And there seems to be a real love of that amongst more Americans than I think we might want mm. to necessarily, you know, hope for. Um, but and I think that if there is any, um, and this is debate that I think a lot of political scientists are having right now, is you know, what is there really anything coherent about Trumpism? I would say. Um, and I was talking with someone the other day about this. I, I think that the, the, certainly the nativism, I think, has has you know been clearly um, you know channeling a lot of Trump's energy. But I think authoritarianism is is the other yeah. thing. And I think that you know there are. People, and we, we might not want to believe this, but there are people out there who really like authoritarian leaders. They like the closing down. They like you know how he supposedly kind of shoots from the hip and makes yes. these kind of crazy decisions on a whim. Um, they like that behavior because, you know, put it in contrast with who held the president before him, Barack Obama, Obama was all those things that conservatives came to hate, yeah. including intellectual, um, deliberative, um, and 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 cautious about doing anything that was too completely declarative. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that that, that that and that again, one of those strains that runs throughout 20th century American political culture.
0: Ooh, fascinating stuff. So it wasn't just because he was black, although that was certainly part of it. But uh, Trump, Trump, part of it. Trump mm-hmm. loves Twitter. What about the nature of Twitter? in this context.
1: Well, you know, you've asked someone who uh, doesn't have a Twitter account and has, and, and refused to get one when it originally came out. Um, I'm not a big believer in, in Twitter. I've always thought, you know, to quote the, the, the novelist Jonathan Franzen, that there was something kind of dumb about it. I never really understood yeah. why it was important that we have a limit on, ter- in terms of the number of words we right. can use to convey our thoughts. It just never really made any sense to me. Um, and I think obviously, I, I think it's, it's a format that, you know, that Trump has, has monopolized upon, right? I mean, he thinks in tweets, um, and that's how he gets his message out. One of the things, you know, to tie back to, to to you had earlier mentioned and, and brought up, FDR, um, FDR uh, was famous for his, you know, uh, uh, fireside chats yes. going over the national airways on radios, right? And he felt it was an important way for him to to uh, to deal directly or get his message out directly to the American people. Clearly Trump, who has this, you know, seemingly profound distrust in the media doesn't like mediated communication, right? He doesn't want his words to get out to... A reader of a of a newspaper or or even a blog or what have you, um, you know, he wants to directly he wants to speak directly to the people. And I think again, that's another one of these major authoritarian tendencies within his presidency, and I think within his persona is that you know, damn the media, I communicate directly to the people who want to listen to what I have to say. And I think it's you know, I mean, again, if if we're if if as as liberals, we have to uh, argue for uh, a more deliberative dimension to our political discussions, um, Twitter is not necessarily the best place to look for that. And that, I'm, I'm saying I put that mildly.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. It's, it's sort of the antithesis of actually thinking about things, just, you know, putting it out there in, in a simple uh, phrase. Now, uh, Democrats, liberals have traditionally kind of gotten away from from populism. But as I mentioned, Fred Harris in 1976 was talking about a new populism. And uh, Jim Hightower, his associate at the time, has also talked about left-leaning populism and how, you know, when we project ourselves as elitist, as I think Hillary Clinton did so thoroughly, we don't win. So I wonder about the place of, of populism now as the 2020 presidential election goes forward. I wonder if there's any way Democrats can use or, or be honestly, you know, authentic uh, political populists in some way going forward? Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I I'm I'm pessimistic about that, and and it's because I think that as as liberals, we have numerous obligations. One of those obligations is to try our best to eradicate socio-economic inequality. That's one of our aims, well, yeah. and, and, and perhaps maybe the most important one. But we also have to have—we uh, uh, have to pay attention. To the to the nature of our kind of civic life and to public discussion um, and to you know those sorts of things in addition to trying to get you know um, government to do something to 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 correct the socioeconomic inequalities we have we need to create a more deliberative more I would say intellectual um, debating society um, rather than the, the 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 vision that Trump presents and I think you can do it I think that there's a way that you can re inject intelligence into um, running for office. I think that, you know, if anything, that Barack Obama had was a, a, a magic with being intelligent, yes. thoughtful, even some would say cool, um, and be able to convey his ideas. Um, and he was, I think, you know, I think he was one of those few figures in, in in recent times who really did inject a kind of intellectualism into the way he talked about American politics and, in, and into what he wanted to accomplish as a president. So I think we have to pay attention both to, you know, the, the socioeconomic problems that need to be addressed, but we had, uh, at the same Same time, and I think we're witness to as to why we need to have um, we need to pay some attention to making our politics more deliberative, more thoughtful, um, and less caustic. I guess is maybe the best use of of that term.
0: Well, that would be nice. I don't know about uh, if there's any conservatism left. It seems to have been replaced by Trumpism. Uh, I I don't know. I I,
1: yeah, it seems to be right. I mean, I don't, I don't, um, I, I I don't know. I can't. well, let, let's wait and see. I think we need to wait and see what happens with, with the investigation as it comes out and ah, yes. where we go down that road. But, but so far, um, you know, Republicans have, have, have walked in unison to back up Trump at this point in time.
0: Yeah, no conservatism. Well, if people want to read more of your stuff, there's that book, uh, Just Plain Dick, Richard Nixon's Checkers speech. And there must be something on that, that Internet stuff. <laughs>
1: I'm sure that people can track that down. Yeah, absolutely.
0: But do you, uh, you write occasionally for Descent magazine as well?
1: Yeah, Ray for dissent um, have been writing a little bit about uh, for a, a, a publication that I'll promote, which is called Dem- Democracy, a Journal of Ideas. Mm. That that stuff can all be found online, um, and uh, have just been writing, uh, just completing a book. So I haven't been as productive in ah. writing articles uh, recently.
0: Well, we appreciate your time very much. Thank you, and uh, we'll try to uh, move forward. Some good, good uh, tools to pick up and use. Thank you.
1: Thank you. <laughs> The power to redeem the work of fools From the meek, the grace to